and I'll ask you to turn in your copy of the scriptures to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 19. And in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 21, we will be reading Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia... This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And so the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not even know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone The courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really are in danger of being charged with rioting today. And since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray. Father God in heaven. Blessed be your holy name. 
we stand before your presence in awe of your magnificence. Those ancient people of Ephesus cried out in error, Great is Artemis the Great, when they should have been crying out, Great is the Lord and worthy to be praised. O Lord, there are so many who are blind and in darkness who worship that which they do not know. But we worship what we know. We worship you, the true and living God, in spirit and in truth. We pray, Almighty Lord, that now you would open our eyes and our hearts, that we may behold wondrous things from your law. Speak to us, minister to us, enable us to understand the passage before us, and enable me, Father, as your servant, anoint my heart, my lips, my mind, that I may speak clearly, boldly, and convincingly to unpack and explain all that's before us, and that our hearts may be Moved by you, Spirit, O God, who could form us to the image of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Twice the word danger is used in our passage today. The first usage of the word, Demetrius, in bringing together the tradesmen of the Workers Guild of Silversmiths, reveals to them that there is a real danger that their livelihoods are threatened by Paul and the preaching of the gospel. On the other end of it, we see that the town clerk, when he saw the upheaval in the city, warned the city of Ephesus that they were in great danger for rioting. And if the Roman officials were to hear of it, There would be a heavy price to pay. There's something about the gospel that rouses people and creates disturbances. Paul is introduced to us in this passage as getting ready to go to Jerusalem and to leave Ephesus, but he stays a little while. And Luke tells us in verse 23 that there arose no little disturbance. And that's a figure of speech that Luke uses to say there was a big disturbance. And this big disturbance resulted in a riot. It resulted in bedlam and confusion and basically people screaming and yelling and running through the streets and, 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 and it's, a, it's a miracle that no one died because that's what they wanted. And why is this? Why is it that the gospel, wherever it is preached throughout the book of Acts, brings disturbance. It brings upheaval. The Lord said something very interesting in his public ministry. Do not think that the Son of Man came to bring peace on earth, but to bring a sword, to set one man against another, to divide mother against father, brother against sister, sister sister-in-law against daughter-in-law, so that even one's enemies will be those of his own household. You see, when the gospel takes hold of your life, it challenges everything of who you are. A person sees who they really are in the sight of God, and there's a radical change when someone comes to faith in the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is the life-giving message of God to sinners. It tells us how we get right with God. 
But when people come to faith and put their trust in Christ and they believe in the gospel, their lives are irrevocably changed. The things you once liked and valued, you no longer like and value. The things that you thought were worthless, now you value and you think are worthy. There's a complete paradigm shift in your worldview. Now when that happens on a bigger level, when a whole city, when a town, when a region, when a state, when a country, when there's revival and many people turn to Christ, that's going to turn all of the social norms and cultural norms on their head. You see, because the gospel challenges us and it challenges society. It challenges a world without God. You see, there are a lot of religious people in this world, but they serve a God of their own making. And the gospel shines the light and exposes the lies that we believe and tells us who God really is. Paul's persecution through the books of Acts is nothing unique. It's been the pattern and experience of every missionary throughout history. Hudson Taylor brought the gospel to China in the mid-19th century. He was a man, and if you don't know anything about Hudson Taylor, read a book about Hudson Taylor. There are certain missionaries that every Christian should know about. And Hudson Taylor is one of them. This, this is a, a great man of God who gave up everything to go to China when China never heard the gospel. And he went there proclaiming Christ. And for many years, God granted him success. The gospel spread. People were saved. Churches were planted and he experienced the hand of God upon him. But Hudson Taylor also experienced great persecution. It didn't happen right away. But little by little, there was a tension building. Because as people's lives were changed, and families were changed, and towns were changed, it was starting to come into conflict with the culture. And among other political movements that were happening at the time, it led up to something called the Boxers' Rebellion in 1899. And for two years, this Boxers' Rebellion was basically a, a, a countercultural revolutionaries. They were, um, they were called the Society of the Righteous and Harmonious Fists. And they revolted in opposition to the Qing Empire, but... But moreover, as they saw things unfolding in China that were bad, as natural disasters were happening and political problems were happening, they pointed the finger at one thing, Christianity. Ever since Christianity came to China, we have problems. 300 Christian foreigners were murdered with their families during the Boxers' Rebellion. And that's not to mention Chinese Christians who were murdered as well, why did the Society of Righteous and Harmonious Fists see Christians as the enemy? Because it was foreign, it was strange, it was different, and it was a threat. It was a threat to everything that they knew. It was a threat to their culture, it was a threat to their lives, it was a threat to their gods, their fake gods. And their whole world was beginning to fall apart. See, the gospel is a threat. The gospel challenges the assumptions we all live under and challenges the deities we worship 
And when people feel threatened and people feel challenged and people are afraid, what do they do? They react with anger, hatred, and hostility. And that's exactly what the gospel does. That's why people resist and oppose the gospel. But there's a deeper underlying current to all that. And we can't forget that within the human race, there are always two groups of people. There are the children of God and the children of Satan. There's the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. There are children of righteousness and children of disobedience. There are children of light and children of darkness. There's really only two human races. You belong to one or the other. And in Genesis 3.15, it tells you that the seed of the serpent will be at enmity with the seed of the woman. And that enmity goes on until Christ returns. Whether it's Pharaoh oppressing the people of Israel or whether it's Paul who's being hunted by those who hate the gospel. Or whether it's Hudson Taylor or whether it's you when you go to work tomorrow and you say something about God and someone mocks you and calls you an idiot. It's a spiritual battle. And that's exactly what it is. We see how this unfolds in Ephesus and we see that Paul begins to experience a new form of opposition. Throughout Paul's ministry and his missionary work, his main enemy had been the Jews. In Corinth, he changes gears. He focuses more on Gentile missionary work. He kind of parts from the Jews. Same thing in Ephesus. But now for the first time in all of his missionary work, he's finding Gentile opposition. These are the pagans. These are, these are the Romans. These are the people who are not Jews. These are, these are people who worship pagan gods and they are filled with rage against Paul. Why? Well, that's the question, isn't it? For Paul, this was something new, but it was the, just the beginning of opposition from the pagan Romans. It would culminate and get much worse before it got better. So let's kind of dive in and look at a few things. Number one, let's look at the tension rising. Let's look at the tension rising. As I said, the gospel had come to Ephesus. Remember the people in the last sermon who... All the Christians who got their magic books and burned them together, those magic books would have been worth millions of dollars according to today's monetary standards. These were people growing in faith. They were growing in discipleship. And as a result, it was impacting the life of the city. It was impacting the culture of the city. So you remember something. In, 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 in ancient society, the patron god or goddess was bound up in the cultural identity of a city and its region. In Ephesus, which was the capital city of Asia Minor, which is Turkey today, modern-day Turkey, the, the patron goddess of that region was Artemis. And just a refreshing from last week, the temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a magnificent structure. There was a, a, a tremendous statue that existed in that temple where people would, would uh, uh, pay worship and vows to. And this statue was believed to have fallen from the sky, sent from Zeus himself. And so people from all over the world came to Ephesus. This was like a, a pilgrimage, a religious pilgrimage for many. It was a tourist attraction. And there were a lot of people that had an economy built around it. Right? You go to Disney World, who's the cultural icon there? Mickey Mouse. And everywhere you go, there's some kind of form of a Mickey Mouse hat or a statue or doll People make money on Mickey Mouse in Orlando, Florida. Well, in Ephesus, you made money on Artemis. 
It was much more than just entertainment, though. This was, had a religious component to it. Amulets and statues had seemed to have spiritual and mystical and superstitious elements to it. And people would buy these little statues and they would buy these amulets and bring them home for protection for their family. And the people who made these statues and who made these uh, figurines and who made these amulets made a tremendous profit on it. But as more people were turning to Christ, remember what I said last time, all the people in Asia were turning to the gospel. There was a significant revival. So if people are turning to Christ, they're burning the magic books, what do you think is happening to business in Ephesus? Business is going down. And that's where we're introduced to Demetrius. He is a tradesman. He's a silversmith. He's the guy who makes the idols. He makes the statues. He makes the amulets, and he makes money off of it. And he does not see the gospel as good news. The gospel's bad news. It's bad news for business. And it's bad news for Artemis. And he sees his livelihood going down the drain. And there's only two options for Demetrius. It's either become a Christian and, and join the club, or it's defeat them and destroy them. It's one of the two. Because at this point, he sees the gospel in one way, as a threat. It is encroaching on his life. It's encroaching on his beliefs. It's encroaching on his culture. And he is boiling with anger. And what does Demetrius do? He rallies the troops. He finds other people in a similar trade who are dealing with the same problems he's dealing with. And there's nothing more that could unite people together than having a mutual grievance. Right? When people all around have the same grievance you have, it's very easy to ignite and inflame the tensions, isn't it? It doesn't take much of a spark to get the tinderbox going. And he's no fool. He knows exactly what he's doing. He pulls them all together and gives them a rousing speech. He's capitalizing on their fears. He's capitalizing on their hatred. He's capitalizing on their anger. He knows what's going on. And it's interesting because Luke doesn't really give us that much of a lengthy a discourse of any unbeliever in the book of Acts. But he does for Demetrius. And I think the Holy Spirit wants to show us something. I think the Holy Spirit wants to show us why there's so much hostility from unbelievers towards the gospel. And so in this rousing speech, it reveals a few things to us. And let's look at this. Verse 24 or 25, rather, it says, He gathered together these workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from our business we have our wealth. The first reason why there is animosity and hostility from the world towards the gospel is because people see their livelihoods threatened. And if people keep becoming Christians, there's no more money to be made. Remember this, there's always wealth to be made on sin. There's always money to be made on sin. You don't believe me? Do you know what the biggest money-making industry in America is? It is the porn industry. It is the mo biggest money-making industry on the internet today. Of all the industries, they blow everyone out of the water. Billions of dollars are spent every year on online pornography. Why? Because sin makes money. And people capitalize on it. They capitalize on the corruption and defilement of the mind and eyes of people. It capitalizes on lost men and women who sell their souls to the devil to make these films. 
It capitalizes on the destruction of the human race. The music and entertainment industry seems very innocuous, but if there was ever an industry where sin and darkness uh, bring profit, it's Hollywood. Not only do celebrities make a royal fortune for our craving from sinful indulgence and entertainment, but they bask in influencing us with more ungodliness and wickedness and idolatry through the entertainment and the media that we consume, which indirectly is impacting how we think and feel. These are the cultural icons for us. We don't worship at the statue of Artemis anymore, but we bow before Hollywood and we bow before the internet and we bow before the idols of this world today. The drug and alcohol industry have a tremendous money-making influence in this society. All right, marijuana was legalized last year. Why? Because it's good for you? No, of course not. There's some people, oh, well, I think it's good for you. Okay, keep smoking it. We'll see how good that works for you in a few years. It's not because it's good for you, because it makes money. There's tax revenue to be made on marijuana. There's nothing good that comes from smoking weed. Go talk to someone who's been smoking weed for 20 years and see if you can carry a conversation. A person can't get one-syllable words out of their mouth. But there's money to be made on sin. And that's why the world is threatened by the gospel. Back in the 19th century, during the revival periods, there were a lot of gospel preachers who preached on reform and preached on prohibition. Prohibition was a big, big policy reform that preachers were looking for in the 19th century. And there was an amendment passed on prohibition. Alcohol was, was banned from sale in America. And then it was another constitutional amendment was passed and they undid the sale of banning alcohol. The whole point is, the whole point of this matter is that people who were in the alcohol business were pursuing and, 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 and looking for to punish and hurt and hunt down those preachers who would preach for prohibition. Why? They were losing money. When the gospel challenges the vices of society and people turn to Christ, those who profited from them will inevitably be angry. There's a second reason why there's hostility. It's because the gospel is a threat to the gods of this world. See, Demetrius wasn't... He knew if he just made it about money, he'd have a hard time convincing him. So he had to bring a moral component to it. He says in verse 26, And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, this Paul has persuaded and turned away people, saying that gods are not made with hands. And there's a danger. There's a danger that we may come into disrepute, but that the temple of the great Goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she will be deposed from her magnificence, oh my. Whether Demetrius was really concerned about Artemis's greatness is not something we can really know for certain, but I believe that it's more of a self-serving appeal. But he's appealing to something. Artemis represented not just the goddess of fertility, but it represented the culture of the Ephesians. It represented their identity. I was talking to someone recently, and uh, 
we were talking about how certain cultures, religion is so bound up in your identity. In, in Mexico, if you're not Roman Catholic, something's wrong with you. Roman Catholicism, whether it's Mexico, Ireland, or, or Italy, it, it, it's one and the same with the culture. You can't be Italian and not be Catholic. You can't be Mexican and not be Catholic. It's like if you abandon Catholicism and become an evangelical Christian, you've, you've betrayed your people because the religion's so bound up with the culture. It's like Buddhism and, and Hinduism is also in the Middle East and in, and, and in Eastern countries. So to betray Buddhism or to betray uh, uh, Hinduism and become a Christian is to betray your people. And that is what he's appealing to, that this is more than just a religion. This is about the people of Ephesus. Because the gospel now is a threat to exposing the nakedness that Artemis is not a god. And the Ephesians believe a lie. And that at the heart of it, their culture is worthless. And that's offensive. You see, idolatry comes in many forms. The idol is simply anything that we worship or give devotion to that takes the place of God. If the Lord is not central in your life and anything else is central, that's an idol. And Calvin famously said, the heart is an idol-making factory. We could create and fashion an idol out of just about anything. People, things, careers, wealth, success, your image, sports, you name it. But here's what thing the gospel does. It exposes the false lies and promises. It exposes the impotence and the worthlessness of the idols that you serve. And because of it, it's a threat. It is a threat to people's identity. It's a threat to their culture. It's a threat to their existence. Notice what he said. Everything's going to come crumbling down. It's all going to fall apart. Turn with me to Isaiah 44. Verse 9. Isaiah 44, 9. All who fashion idols are nothing. This is speaking to the men like Demetrius. He's a silversmith. He fashions idols. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. And the craftsmen are only human. Let them assemble. Let them stand forth. Let them be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. Those who put their trust in idols will be put to shame. They are nothing. They are worthless. The iron smith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. And the carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man. With the beauty of a man so to dwell in a house. And he cuts down cedars or chooses a cypress tree or an oak. And lets it grow among the trees of the forest. And he plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. And he takes a part of it and warms himself. And he kindles a fire and bakes bread. And he also makes a god and worships it. And he makes it an idol and falls down before it. It's absurd. 
Idolatry is absurd. That's the whole point of the prophecy here. A man takes a piece of wood, part of it he makes a fire, part of it he bakes a piece of bread, and the other part he bows down and worships it. It is God alone who is to be worshipped. It is God alone who is worthy of all honor and praise. You see, there's no difference today when the Fulani herdsmen in Nigeria see the gospel's power in changing lives, their power structure, their culture, their identity is threatened. And so what do they do? They murder and butcher and rape and kill Christians. When the People's Communist Party of China see the power of the gospel changing lives and influencing people to think differently, it is a threat. It is a threat to the way of life of the Communist Party. And so the reaction is hostility, so they imprison people. You see, at the end of the day, people are afraid and threatened by the gospel. And that's why they oppose the gospel. People choose to believe a lie and peddle the lie and uphold the lie, no matter how foolish and absurd it is. Well, what happens as a result of this if there's one thing you could call Demetrius, he's a textbook definition of what we call a demagogue. You hear that figure of speech a lot, that expression a lot in politics today, right? A demagogue. They'll say, well, so-and-so is a demagogue, and they're using demagoguery. Well, what, is, what does that word mean? It actually goes back to the ancient Greek. Now, in English, the word demagogue simply means a leader who obtains power by means of impassioned appeals to the emotions and prejudices of the population. Well, that's Demetrius. In ancient Greek, it was simply a rabble-rouser, someone who incited a mob. Because what do you do? You get to people's hearts. You, you pull their emotions. You don't get them to think rationally. You stoke the anger. You stoke the grievances, and you get people riled up. This isn't about politics. This is about God, though. This is opposition to God. And there's a lot of hostility that can be stoked. Now, Luke describes the, the fallout of this. His demagoguery was successful. It says in verse 29, when the people heard this, they were enraged. They were filled with rage and anger, and they cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Slogans and chants have a way of defining solidarity. When people are emotionally charged up, don't they? So they repeat the chant. Great is Artemis the Great. Great is Artemis the Great. Great is Artemis. And they keep repeating it. We keep repeating it. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. While it represented Ephesian pride, it was also demonstrated their assault against God. In Revelation 13, 4 Similar language is used to describe how the unbelievers exalt the beast. It says in Revelation 13, 4, they worship the dragon who had given his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? The beast represents political authority, secular authority that is opposed to God. And when people exult in the power and authority of secular government, godless secular government, what they're really doing is opposing God. See, the beast of Revelation is really the ultimate idol. 
In Rome, it was very simple, right? Caesar is Lord. He's God. And so you worship Caesar. It was one and the same. It was very patently explicit. But don't we see vestiges of that today? I don't care what party you were in, but we've seen in the last decade or two people exalting political leaders, elevating them above God himself. There's something wrong, desperately wrong with a society when we elevate political leaders to that extent. 1 Corinthians 16.25 tells us, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are his place. The next thing that happened was the city was filled with confusion. You know, when people's emotions are charged and a riot builds up, there's pandemonium and chaos. It's confusion. It says in verse 32, some cried out one thing, some another, for there was a this whole place was confusion. People didn't even know why they were there. We saw a lot of riots uh, last year in different cities across America. A lot of people got involved in those riots, had no clue what they were there for. They just joined, they see a big crowd, they see a, a rabble, and then let's get involved, and let's, let's, let's make some craziness. It shows you the chaos of the sinful nature. It draws us in. And apart from God, we want the chaos. God is a God of order. Apart from Christ, we want chaos, disorder, dysfunction. The Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is a God of, not of confusion, but of peace. And so the mob is formed. And then false charges are bringing. They wanted Paul, but they'll settle. And so they took two of his companions, Aristarchus and Gaius, and they dragged them into the theater. It was an amphitheater where pretty much plays were put on, gladiators fought. And if a mob, mob wanted to get rush in and, and kill someone, it was a good place to do that too. And so the mob rushed in, and they brought in Aristarchus and Gaius, and they were, they were going to kill him. And Paul, not wanting to run from danger, is going to run in there too. But the disciples said, no, don't you dare. And the Asiarchs, who were the political leaders and officials of Asia, actually hindered him. They were Christians as well. Now I want you to think about that because as we see what happens next, you see the providence of God in protecting Paul. Hostility begins inwardly. The people were already hostile. There was a negative sentiment brewing in, in Ephesus towards Christianity. Demetrius was just clever enough and inspired enough to bring it all together. He, he united the opposition together. But notice how quickly it went to a fevered pitch. Oh, that would never happen today, Bob. Really? Let me remind you of this. There is still that sentiment that exists in unbelievers today. There is a resentment and a hostility that brews within non-Christians. They're in your family. They're in your workplace. And they can't stand you. And they can't stand Christianity. They can't stand your church. And they can't stand the gospel because they can't stand God. And all it takes is one spark to get everybody galvanized together. And boy, you would see how quickly a mob would form. 
And when it does, it's hard to put it down. We are blessed in America. Why? Because we have laws that protect us. Thank God that we live in a country where we have our constitutional right of freedom of religion. In other countries, they don't have that. And so when people decide to do this, it still happens. They murder, they pillage, they plunder. Well, the laws did work to some extent here. Verse 35 tells us there was a surprising intervention. The town clerk intervenes. He's not an official. He's just the town clerk. But he rushes into the theater, sees what's going on, and he warns the Ephesians that they are in great danger. He's an intelligent man, and he's experienced with crowd control. And so look at what he says. Men of Ephesus, verse 35, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. He's appealing to the greatness of their God and saying, listen, just remember who we are and who our God is. Nothing's going to happen. You're, making, you're acting like you're afraid that something bad is going to happen. Our God cannot be toppled. Don't be so threatened. Well, he was appealing to what? He was appealing to their belief and trust in the lie. You know, it's an amazing thing. People believe so much in the lie that they believe that the lie will actually overcome the truth. The fact is, the Ephesians were right. Where's the temple of Artemis today? It doesn't exist. Where's the church today? It exists. The cult of Artemis eventually found its demise in 401 AD when John Christosom, one of the greatest preachers of the ancient church, led the church to the temple where they destroyed it piece by piece. The cult of Artemis eventually fell, was exposed, and to this day, it doesn't exist. The idols will be cast down. Secondly, he appealed to the righteousness here. He's saying, listen, these men, Gaius and Aristarchus, are not guilty of sacrilege nor blasphemy. They're innocent. Even though the clerk is a pagan himself, he was righteous, and he said, listen, you can't bring charges against this man. If you do, they're unrighteous charges. Thirdly, if you have a private grievance, you can go to court. But then fourthly, he reminds them that they are in danger of being charged with civil disorder. And there's no justification for it. And if so, the real danger was how upset the Romans would be when they found out what was going on. A little background in ancient Rome. If you were under Rome's authority and you started a riot without cause, the punishment was severe. People were crucified, people were murdered and killed. It wasn't like here in America when there's a, No, no, people were brutally, brutally put down. They would line up crucifixes along the main street of the, the town to remind people, this is what will happen to you if you ever riot again. You don't riot in Rome. And so immediately the people went home. Danger. They thought they were in danger from the gospel coming into their world and overthrowing their belief system, which was built on lies. The town clerk says, listen, your real danger here today is that we're in danger of being put down by Rome 
And that's really dangerous. You better count the cost. I and mean, is it worth it to persecute these Christians when you have no case? But the biggest danger was this, was the danger of their souls. You see, they were fighting against God. The danger was that they were choosing to believe a lie rather than the truth. The danger was that they were opposing Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The greatest danger was that they were at risk of losing their eternal soul forever in hell because they chose not to believe in God, but chose to believe in a lie. The greatest danger was that they would continue in darkness, worshiping a false god that could not deliver them, that could not save them from their sins, and that could not offer them forgiveness. There are still people today that are greatly in danger. There are people here today that are in danger that if you died today, you would leave this world and you do not know where you're going because you do not know Christ. And if you do not have Christ, if you have not come to repentance and faith in him, you will leave this world with great danger and risk to your soul. You may be sitting here today seething with anger listening to the sermon saying, and deep inside, I hate what this guy's preaching. Your anger is not at me, it is against God. And that risk and that danger is very serious. It tells us in 2 Thessalonians 9, 2, 9 through 12, talking about the end times, says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. People believe lies because they refuse to love the truth. You know what God says when you refuse to believe the truth and choose to believe a lie? He gives you what you want. That's, that's, that's what the Lord does. This is verse 11. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. How long can you believe the lie? It's not safe to live the lie. The gospel challenges us and threatens us with the truth versus the lie. The world we live in and its beliefs are an illusion. The God of this world has dominion, but he, his days are numbered. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. It is Christ who is the Son of God, who came to this world sinless. He was born the perfect human being. He is fully God and fully man, and he died on a cross for you and for me. He bore our sins, the penalty that we deserve. We deserve eternal judgment for our sins. You will either pay for your sins forever in hell or take the payment of Christ because he paid the debt in full. And by the way, you will pay forever. There doesn't come a day where you say, okay, I paid my debt, now I can go to heaven. It doesn't work that way. Judgment is eternal because sin is eternal. When you sin, you sin against an eternal God. And therefore, the penalty is forever. Let me conclude by saying this. There's encouragement for us who believe in Christ. We see that opposition will always exist. Though the town clerk quelled the crowds and sent them home, 
and Paul was delivered, it wouldn't be long before he would be persecuted. In fact, eventually, the Roman Empire would kill Paul. He would be martyred, beheaded by the orders of Emperor Nero himself. In 1 Corinthians 15.32, Paul says, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? He didn't fight with wild animals. The beasts he fought were these beasts who sought to lynch him and his friends. You see, when people follow their sinful nature and don't follow God, we're like brute animals. We act like beasts towards God. We act like beasts towards our fellow man. Only when we come to Christ does he restore the image of God in us. You know, the psalmist, when he reproached God, said in Psalm 73, 22, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. The gospel makes incursions into people's lives, and as it does, people will see the threat And they will oppose it. But ultimately, it is the truth. Truth is a funny thing. Truth is what we all want, isn't it? But yet when we're confronted with the truth, and it shows the lies we believe, the lie is more comfortable than the truth, isn't it? May God give us grace. May God give us his mercy to open our eyes and humble us that we may see the lies that we believe and forsake them and forsake the idols and believe in the true and living God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this word. You have exposed us today. You have exposed our hearts to the truth. I pray that we would be better for it. I pray that the outcome of our lives would be guided by your word and by the gospel and not by the delusions of the false gods and the idols of our world. Help us, O Lord. Help us to believe in you and help us to forsake sin. To your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen.